Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. On this episode, I'm joined by Patrick Salvi, a nationally recognized plaintiff's personal injury attorney based in Chicago, Illinois. Pat's firm has obtained more than 280 multi-million dollar verdicts and settlements, totaling more than $1.5 billion on behalf of injured clients. Pat discusses some of his massive trial wins, including the $148 million jury verdict in Darden v. City of Chicago. That verdict more than doubled the previous record in the state of Illinois and made a huge difference in the life of the young woman who was injured. In this interview, Pat provides valuable insights on litigation and trial, including picking a jury and maximizing a damages award. Patrick Salvi, welcome to the Litigation War Room. Oh, I'm happy to be here, Max. A pleasure. Pat, I look forward to talking with you today about a very significant injury case that you handled, as well as your reflections on the practice of law. But first, please tell our audience just a little bit about your practice and about your law firm. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, Well, I'm a a personal injury lawyer in Chicago. I own and operate a a law firm with 19 lawyers uh, in downtown Chicago. Uh, We limit our practice to representing people that are catastrophically injured or who lose the loved one in uh, wrongful death uh, litigation. It's a very heavy trial practice. A significant percentage of the practice is medical malpractice, but also construction, injuries, of course, transportation, negligence, premise liability, product liability, and uh, and the like. Pat, if I'm not mistaken, you've been a personal injury lawyer pretty much your whole career. Um, How did you get into PI law? Well, actually, uh, after I graduated from Notre Dame Law School, I actually practiced with my father in a general practice of law for a short period of time. And we did everything, probate, divorce, criminal, and personal injury. And uh, that's what I really took a liking to. I wanted to be in court. Criminal law, you can get into court. And I admire those that are in it. But by and large, your clients are criminals. (laughs) And more often than not, not always, uh, they're guilty. So... That really, uh, I did do some of that, but uh, I really had some good results in in personal injury cases and told my dad, you know, I really want to open my own practice, limit it to personal injury. And so I started off uh, by myself and uh, knock on wood, it's blossomed into, I like to humbly say is, you know, one of the top law firms in the city. That's great. That's great. And it's interesting that you started in practice with your father. I understand you're in practice now with Two sons. Yeah, I have two of my sons with me, uh, Patrick, uh, my oldest son, and Brian, my number three son, who's on trial right now. His second trial during uh, jury trial during uh, COVID, he and I tried a case in November, and there haven't been too many live jury trials during COVID, in, in certainly in Illinois and probably across the country. But Patrick and I have tried seven jury trials together, including the one we're going to talk about, Tyranny Darden versus the city of Chicago. And Brian and I have tried uh, three or four trials together, and uh, he's the lead lawyer in this case now, and it's a uh, interesting case in, in Waukegan, Illinois. So I also have a daughter-in-law with me, is Brian's wife, Erin A. She was also involved in the Darden case, also tried that case with us in November, and uh, all Notre Dame graduates, which I, I know you have a fondness for. So 
it's a real pleasure practicing with my sons. And I love all my lawyers in, in the law firm, but uh, there's something particularly energizing when, when you practice with your children. Mm-hmm, I can imagine. You mentioned you've done two trials, or your firm has done two trials during the COVID pandemic? I've done one. This will be Brian's second, because he tried the case with me in a rural community in um, Northwest Illinois called Boone County, named after Daniel Boone. A very sad case, the death of a father and a son. And Brian uh, has another trial in Lake County, Illinois, which is the county just north of Cook, going on right now, an automobile accident case and um, serious injuries. And I'm sort of, it started Monday. I'm getting kind of reports uh, on a daily basis. Sounds like it's going in so far so good. What's it like trying a case via Zoom? Well, it's not Zoom, it's live. Oh, okay. I assume you were doing them remotely. No, these are live. They use a a very large courtroom. Uh, No one's allowed in the courtroom itself. The jurors uh, sit in the in the aisles that are ordinarily uh, designated for uh, people observing the trial. Everyone is socially distanced. You wear a mask unless you're speaking, like witness and an examining lawyer. You know, there's challenges to it. Uh, in order to fulfill the kind of public aspect of the trial, there's a television monitor out in the hallway. In Cook County, because there's so many thousands of people that are in or out of the courthouse every day, we haven't started yet. But some of the outlying counties, including like Boone County and Lake County in Illinois, where there isn't much activity normally in a uh, courthouse, they're able to do it. The jurors would deliberate in another courtroom, a large courtroom. You know, it it slows the process up and you have to kind of accommodate things as soon as a, a witness say would be done. The bailiff would then uh, clean off the the area, the microphone, the, the, the uh, table, and, and so forth. And in a personal injury case, we had, um, or this was a wrongful death case in November, the jurors ordinarily would be positioned much closer to the witness stand. And so it takes away a little bit from good, emotional, compelling testimony, which we had with the loss of a father and a son. Uh, leaving uh, a wife and children, siblings. But even given those challenges, we were able to get it done of a relatively straightforward case. We didn't want to wait. And so uh, it worked out. Very large verdict in Boone County, and I'm hoping Brian gets one in, in Lake. Pat, your firm has had a heck of a track record. Could you please tell our audience about some of your firm's wins? Well, yeah, every lawyers love to talk about their wins, right? <laughs> That's a favorite question. You don't hear anything about losses. You know, but uh, we have had, uh, knock on wood, we've had a very good track record of uh, success. You know, we have the highest Illinois personal injury verdict in, in the history of the state, Tierney Darden, which we're going to discuss. But we've had uh, many, many uh, other uh, seven and eight figure verdicts as well and recovered over a billion and a half on behalf of our clients. And so, you know, we're good at what we do. I know you're a baseball fan too. And in fact, you own two baseball teams. Yes, I have two minor league professional teams. One is in Gary, Indiana, the Gary South Shore Railcats. And one is in Schaumburg, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago, the Schaumburg Boomers. They're in different leagues the American Association, and the Frontier League, both of whom are partner leagues with uh, Major League Baseball. So our teams are not affiliated with a certain franchise. 
but uh, we are a uh, partner league with MLB. We share all sorts of things with MLB and, and so forth. So it's great fun. I don't play golf, so this is my, my hobby. I have a, a very nice kind of sports management people in place that kind of run it for me, and I, I can uh, just uh, go to the ball game for the most part and have fun and get a beer and a hot dog and, and uh, talk to the fans. Just like anybody else, right? That's right. That's right. And you've had a long association with Notre Dame Law School. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, I, um, I've had the uh, good fortune of uh, sitting in the Law School Advisory Council, which is sort of the advisory board of the, of the law school. I serve as the chairman I have for oh, about, uh, I would say, about six, six to eight years now. I've been on it since early 2000s. And, you know, we um, interact with the dean, the faculty, the students, and in addition, I'm a 1978 graduate of the law school, and uh, I have four out of my five sons went to Notre Dame, and uh, two graduated from the law school. One double domer, which is Brian. And for those of your listeners that don't know what double domer means, it's a uh, well, you know, although you probably have mentioned it, it's where you get your undergraduate degree and, in this case, a law degree from from Notre Dame. So Notre Dame overload. You're inspiring either love or hatred in each of our listeners right now. That's right. Yeah, either love him or hate him. I had one of my sons actually played football for Notre Dame, Christopher. He graduated in 2013. He actually played in 35 games. My wife and I went to 40 games in a row, home and away, in 2010, 11, and 12. And he was a good player. And it was just, uh, you know, one of the uh, most fun uh, experiences of our lives. It was just uh, really a joy. Well, I first met you, Pat, when I was a student at Notre Dame Law School years ago. Honestly, your class on personal injury litigation was one of my favorite classes there. We used David Ball's book on damages. I I still have that book on my shelf, and I've used it many times in my own law practice. The other thing that stood out was just how accessible you were to students. You'd always hang around after class to answer questions. And it seems like every time I'd send you an email about something uh, in the class, you'd fire back a response within a matter of minutes. Um, Not every professor does that, and I know uh, I really appreciated it. Oh, yeah. Well, it was nice of you to say, Max. And I can tell your listeners you were one of my most outstanding students. Naturally. Uh, (laughs) Naturally. (laughs) One of the most talented (laughs) students I'd ever run across in a long time. goes without saying. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And it was a great... It was a a great experience, and I have a lot of uh, connections to this day as a result of those classes and and those books that you have. And Ball on Damages, I still still use to this day and get little snippets and reminders and ideas. And so I'm a big proponent of that, but that's nice of you to say, and I'm glad you're employing some of those things. Well, let's talk a little bit about the uh, Tierney Darden case. Sure. Um, as I understand it, the case involved a young woman, a woman named Tierney Darden, who was catastrophically injured when a bus shelter collapsed on her at O'Hare Airport in Chicago. And as I understand the facts, high winds knocked over the structure, severing Darden's spine and, and leaving her paralyzed. Yeah, yeah, it was really a very compelling case. Tierney Darden, she was 24 at the time. She, her mom, and her sister were coming back from Minneapolis preparing for her sister's wedding up there. And her dad was uh, 
picking her up at the airport. Uh, for anybody that's been to O'Hare and the lower level, you get your luggage, you go outside, and if you're being picked up by a family friend or a family member on the outside area, and what they had at the time were these fiberglass bus shelters, which you see in the cities and so forth. It's not entirely enclosed. It has an opening where you can shield yourself from uh, wind or rain or snow and the elements. But on this day, the rain was coming in at an angle where if you were inside the bus shelter, you'd get wet. So the mom and Tierney's sister uh, and herself stood behind it waiting for her dad to come. And uh, unbeknownst to them, and what we learned later, is that the seven steel anchors, it was sort of a, a steel flat anchor with screws in it into the concrete, over the course of decades had never been maintained, repaired, checked. And so as a result of all the Chicago winters, they became very corroded, and essentially the one that they were standing behind was not really being held in by anything other than its own weight. And it was windy. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't tornado weather. The planes were still coming in and out. But uh, it was enough with this very unstable bus shelter to be blown over. Her mom and her sister got out. She didn't. It fell on her and immediately, and not only damaged her spinal cord, but ripped it in half, just tore it to shreds in the the bad thing about that, it's bad enough to be paralyzed, but when you suffer that kind of a traumatic shearing of the spinal cord, you're at very high risk for neuropathic pain. And unfortunately, that is a, uh, another diagnosis that Tierney had. So, And bear in mind, too, she was a dancing student at a small college in, in Chicago, and her dream was to open a dance studio. So we filed suit against the city of Chicago, alleging that they didn't maintain uh, these uh, bus shelters. After many, many months of discovery and deposing literally everyone that might have anything whatsoever to do with the maintenance or repair, it became clear that no one was given the uh, responsibility, for whatever reason, of checking these shelters. And so they, they, they went unchecked. And everybody thought that somebody, some other department was going to do it. There's no doubt that the city was responsible. They own and operate the airport. And so finally, several months before trial, they admitted liability. Not out of the goodness of their heart, but because, you know, there was just no other, no other way to go. The only possible defense that could have happened was an act of God where, you know, given the weather— but even their own meteorological review disclosed that if the wind was not so high that if they were properly anchored, they would have been able to withstand the recorded uh, wind speeds at, at O'Hare at the time of the occurrence. So Now, if I can just stop you for a second, Pat. It's interesting you said the defense eventually, prior to trial, admitted liability. And that's not a, an uncommon defense strategy when the facts are very much against them. Can you say a little bit, though, about why, why a defendant would do that and then how it impacts your, your strategy going into trial? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, when the facts are pretty obvious, you know, every defendant struggles with the, the issue of whether or not they should admit liability and try the case on damages only. The advantage to it is that you then eliminate 
any and all information having to do with the defendant's conduct. So the more uh, reckless it is or egregious it is, the more likely it makes strategic sense for the defense to admit liability. So you eliminate that. Just to get those ugly facts away from the jury. Yes, with the idea being if they have the ugly facts, it's likely to inflate the jury award. Certainly, you know, when you have intoxication or particularly reckless conduct, that's a no-brainer. When it's when it's something, uh, I, I think they did the right thing here. Also, they're faced with the proposition that if you don't admit liability, uh, the plaintiff can threaten to file a summary judgment on liability, going before the court and saying, judge, there is, you can rule as a matter of law that this is... Um, negligence that caused the the injury. And and then, depending on the the judge and the jurisdiction, you might have the benefit of being able to tell the jury, hey, they didn't admit they made a mistake. The judge had to rule as a matter of law that it was so obvious that uh, liability was found in this particular case. So if they want to avoid the bad facts and they don't want it, uh, the jury to be told the judge ruled as a matter of law, they'll admit liability and you keep it out. Now, it doesn't bother me too much. I think what the plaintiff's lawyer does to take advantage of it is just kind of make it clear from the get-go that, number one, you know, when you file a lawsuit, it's not as if, you know, and and they admit liability and, you know, right from the get-go, there's discovery done. And if there's any defense whatsoever, you're going to hear it. And that didn't happen in this case. So the plaintiff, just so we understand, everyone understand, the plaintiff is 0% at fault. The defendant, by their own admission, is 100% at fault. So we're talking about a total victim. So I'd like to tell you about what happened, but I can't. I can't. And so, you know, there's going to be some jurors that are going to think, oh, my God, you know, they may, uh, you know, their imagination may be even worse than the actual facts may be. So I haven't really found it to be uh, a major problem. I, I do think it makes sense from a strategic standpoint for the defense oftentimes. But I think it really is important for the defense lawyer to be particularly talented in handling and holding down damages. And, you know, admitting liability, that's just step one. Step two is is a defense lawyer that knows how to communicate with the jury in such a way that they can uh, hold down the damages and take advantage of the fact that uh, this trial is on damages only. Can you tell us a little bit about the trial itself? Yeah. There were, I had a number of you know, terrific uh, lawyers working on it with me, Tara Devine, my, as I said, my son Patrick, my, my daughter-in-law, Erin uh, A. Salvi. And I got involved in the discovery of the case when Tierney Darden was deposed for a second time because she had had a very extensive ongoing treatment uh, during the course of, and so we allowed the defense to take a supplemental deposition because so much had been done, you know, since her first deposition. And I presented her and uh, I knew it was bad, but when she was deposed and I saw, you know, what sad shape she was in from the standpoint, not her paralysis was just one component. 
of her injury, you know, and it can't uh, feel and wa- can't walk, no ball and bladder control and all of the terrible things that go along with paralysis. But when you add this component of constant, unrelenting, severe, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 out of 10 on a scale of one to 10 every day to this paralysis. The pain you mean? That's the neuropathic pain? Yeah, the neuropathic pain. And I was just really, really uh, moved. And then on top of it, you know, ordinarily you sue a city, like if a police officer does something wrong or a a cop, uh, you know, is involved in a high-speed chase and shouldn't be and someone's injured. And at least in the city of Chicago, oftentimes you have to go before the uh, city council, get approval, they authorize a payment. But at the airport, Unlike just uh, incidents in the city, the the city of Chicago has a $500 million liability policy through AIG Aviation, or that's that's the company they had at the time. So I had admitted liability. I had $500 million in coverage. I had a paralyzed dancer who, as sweet as it could be, wonderful family, horrific injury and uh, unrelenting neuropathic pain. I mean, if ever you're going to try a case, uh, this was it. And so that's how we prepared. And then as, as the trial approached, we focus grouped it several times. And one of the issues was, what will we voir dire and indicate to the jury the amount of money we're going to ask for? And initially, you know, because the thinking is sometimes some lawyers think, well, if you ask for too much, you hurt your hurt your credibility and you actually hurt the case. Uh, although my son Patrick always says, Dad, let me understand this thinking. You're saying that if you ask for more, they're going to give you less. Is that the is that the, is that the theory? <laughs> and uh, you know, I um, in a case like this, you know, and the initial thought was. You know, are we are we pushing the envelope if we ask for more than a hundred million? And then when we talked about it, I think it was Patrick said, "Why aren't you asking for two hundred million?" And so when we focus grouped it, we did find that approaching two hundred million was kind of you know the outer limit of where we wanted to be. Now there were focus group people, and they would come back and say, "Oh, that Salvi asking for you know approaching two hundred million." That's outrageous. I was thinking more like 70. And so we were okay with that. And so that's kind of what we anticipated. But as it turned out, in this particular case, all the stars aligned. You know, when you try a case, anybody that's tried a lot of cases, they will tell you that when your entire veneer comes into the courtroom before the start of the trial, as you're just about to commence jury selection, you're going to get a mixed bag. But on this day, for this trial, almost without exception, one prospective juror was better than the next. It was just a dream entire veneer. With a few exceptions, and there's a, there's a very uh, interesting story uh, within the, the trial I'd, I'd, I'd like to share. It kind of illustrates how the stars aligned in this particular case. You know, so we had a really a terrific jury. With the offer, the last offer was $30 million. Our demand was $95 million. And so I really did not want to settle the case. It would have been a little bit more difficult if they got into 50 or $60 million, but they never did, thankfully. 
I'm not sure, you know, quite, you know, what direction we would have gone at that point. I know the judge, uh, you know, would have been pushing us at that point. We had a very good trial judge, uh, Judge Claire McWilliams in Chicago, one of the fine, experienced uh, trial judges. I've had her on another trial, too. And she's fair to both sides and excellent, decisive trial judge. And she tried to pre-try it before we started. But so... As oftentimes happen in our cases, uh, the uh, defense lawyer who has the case is either replaced or they add an additional lawyer, which they did in this case, a, a large international firm called Denton's, you know, very, very fine lawyers uh, coming in on a very, very difficult case in the last few months of the trial. And they did a great job. They just were faced with a, you know, very, very challenging case. So, the issue in the case was that we said that the likelihood is that, unfortunately, some injuries are so bad that there's really nothing you can do to make it much better. And this was, unfortunately, the curse that she had. The defense was, we agree that she's got a paralysis, obviously, in this horrific neuropathic pain. We don't deny it. But we have experts that are going to say that if she has a procedure called a, uh, the uh, installation of a spinal cord stimulator, which is a device which is put on your, uh, your spinal cord, some uh, area uh, just above where the injury is, and it provides electronical current, has a battery and, a, and so forth into these electrodes, and they actually don't know exactly how it works, but that it does work in that it interferes with pain signals from where the injury is to the brain and significantly reduces pain. And it does, it does have a very good track record of success, but our, our response was it doesn't have a good track record of success for this kind of spinal cord injury. Other types of failed back syndrome, other types of pain syndromes, yes, but for where you have a shearing of the spinal cord like this, it's not likely to work. Might be worth a try, but not likely to work. And in, in Illinois and in most jurisdictions, another very helpful law is that the plaintiff is not required to undergo a major procedure to mitigate the damages. And she had had a, uh, another type of spinal cord surgery called a, uh, a spharynx, where the, there is a belief that the pain might be caused by a cyst that has developed within the spinal cord. If you drain the cyst, that that will reduce the pain. And this is pretty major microscopic syrinx surgery, and it's uh, in the cord itself, and that failed. So I was able to argue, listen, maybe she'll have the procedure, but she's already had a procedure. She's already been told, okay, this is going to reduce the pain significantly. And guess what? It didn't work. And so you can't blame her for not wanting to, you know, run to the operating room and, and have this procedure. But it was our doctors against their doctors in terms of how likely it was that this spinal cord stimulator was going to work. And the defense lawyer got up and said, you know, he was going to have the, you know, the top doctors testify that, it's going to work. And uh, as it turned out, our treating neurosurgeon, as I was preparing him for his testimony, I was in his office 
And he was very experienced in uh, spinal cord stimulators, as I learned. He's the guy that did the uh, syrinx operation. And, and we were taught, I said, well, they're, they're going to say that spinal cord stimulator is going to take care of everything. And he said, well, I don't, I don't think it's going to work uh, in this case. It might be worth a try. Uh, you know, I've, I do a lot of these. And, and then I said, what is that on your wall? He, had, he said, the, those are patents that I, uh, I've been awarded for. I developed the electrodes device for the spinal cord stimulator. And he had a big poster, and it was by uh, a manufacturer, the man- main manufacturer of spinal cord stimulator. Thank you, Dr. So-and-so. Signed, and it was the CEO of the company. I said, what's that? He goes, oh, that's the CEO of the, the manufacturer. He was thanking me for, you know, developing this electrode. I said, we're bringing all this to court. And so I had the guy that had the patent on the electrode for a spinal cord stimulator coming in to say that it might be worth a try, but the overwhelming likelihood it's not going to work. And they had a, a doctor, you know, a good pain doctor, but somebody that was not even privileged at his hospital to put one of these spinal cord stimulators in somebody. So it's not hard to stand before the jury and say, okay, you know, this is a big, this is a big decision you got to make. If she does have one, and it might be worth a try, understanding the law is she doesn't have to have one. That's not how it works. The defendant doesn't dictate, oh, you can have an operation on your spine and you'll be a lot better. That's not how it works. But let's say she has it because it's so bad she wants to try it. More likely than not, is it going to work? You have to make the decision for her. Your decision for the rest of her life is so much dependent on who you believe. So you're going to go with the guy that you know, did the patent for the electrodes, is very experienced, or this doctor, no disrespect, but he's not even privileged at this community hospital to even put him in. Is that what you're going to base the decision for this 24-year-old for the rest of her life? Uh, come on, that wouldn't be fair. And so, you know, obviously that was, that was very compelling testimony, but I thought what really uh, spoke well to the fact that uh, the stars were really aligned for us was Early on in jury selection, I decided to leave on a, a young jury. He was single. Uh, I wasn't wild about him, but I, I didn't. He seemed like an okay guy, and I didn't see him as a, a big player in the, in the deliberations. And so, whereas, you know, I could have used a peremptory challenge. Remember, I'm early on, so I didn't want to use them too soon. I like to keep as many as I can. Too many young lawyers, I think, want a perfect jury and they use up their peremptory challenges too fast. But in any event, I started to just to body language during the trial. Everyone was great except this one guy. And in Illinois, jurors within the court's discretion can ask questions. And you know who the, what jurors asking what question because the judge will say, anybody got a question? You know, somebody will raise their hand, they'll write it on a piece of paper, the bailiff will pick it up and give it to the judge. And this guy would, after a doctor would testify, this guy would ask a question like, when are they going to invent a device to cure paralysis and how much do you think it's going to cost? You know, as a plaintiff's lawyer, that's not a good question, right? That's, that's not what you want. And that's the kind of questions this guy's asking. But, you know, what are you going to do? I'm, I'm stuck with him. And I just got to hope he's not going to be a big player and the other jurors will just convince him otherwise. 
So we're into the defense case, and the defense actually had a physiatrist, a life care planner, who was a paraplegic from California. He only testifies for the defense, which struck me as strange. Here's a paraplegic who testifies against paraplegics. And so he's testifying, and his direct examination was most of the morning. I started my cross-examination about 11.30 in the morning. And at about noon, the judge says, Mr. Salvi, would this be a good time to take a lunch break and you can resume your cross? Uh, And I said, yes, judge. And so everybody breaks for lunch. The doctor in his wheelchair, he's testifying from his wheelchair, not the witness stand. He stays in the courtroom. And unbeknownst to us, I learned a lesson. The doctor drops his water bottle as uh, jurors are going out to lunch. And this this bad juror picks it up, gives it to the doctor. Thank you very much. They have some conversation, but then the jurors all go to lunch. Well, it turns out, again, I learned this later, the bad juror comes back. The doctor's still there. And on this particular, this was in the summer of 2017, and we had a, a, an eclipse of the sun. And the doctor says to this juror, how was the eclipse? And they start talking. And the only people in the courtroom, fortunately, the court reporter and one of the defense lawyers who, who doesn't say anything until finally he says, you know, doc, you probably shouldn't be talking to the, to the juror. And so fortunately, the court reporter tattled. And so as we get back from lunch, the judge says, oh, I got to see everybody in chambers. And she tells us the story of the juror. And she said, I'm upset with the doctor. He's a very experienced witness. And counsel, defense counsel, I'm a little upset with you. You probably could have interceded a little sooner. And, and uh, so what are we going to do? So <laughs> I tell a little white lie. I said, Judge, I don't know if he's for the plaintiff or for the defense, but I think the safest thing to do would be to kick him off. And, you know, then we, you know, we went back and forth and trying to decide what to do. And I pulled the defense lawyer aside. I said, listen. Uh, the smartest thing you can do is agree to this. You do that, and I'm not going to make a stink about, you know, this probably should have been nipped in the bud sooner. To make a long story short, she removed him, and he was replaced by an alternate juror. And this alternate juror who replaced him was one of the jury, after a verdict was read of $148 million, he came up to me and said, I'm sorry, Mr. Selvey, I tried to get you more. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's that Talk tells about me, an act of God, right? Yeah, yeah. So that tells you that the stars are uh, aligned. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> that's amazing. So it was, you know, just one of those, you know, once in a lifetime cases. And another thing we learned in in the focus group was in Illinois, you get to itemize your elements of compensation. And uh, they're itemized on the verdict form. And they're itemized past loss of a normal life, future loss of a normal life, past pain and suffering, future pain and suffering, past emotional distress, future emotional distress, past disfigurement, et cetera. And we decided in the focus groups that it was best to put that your best elements on top in the very beginning. No, loss of a normal life, pain and suffering, those were our two biggest ticket items. Because if you have them, a lot of times you don't, you, if you had them near the bottom, sometimes the jurors, you know, they're, they're filling in the amounts and they get kind of dollar fatigue, you know, it's, it's adding up to be too much. 
And so we had past uh, loss of a normal life and future loss of a normal life, number one, past pain and suffering, and future pain and suffering as the top four. And they awarded, I think, over $100 million in those four elements alone. She had a 56-year life expectancy, future loss of a normal life. I asked for $56 million. They gave me every nickel. I did ask for $56 million future pain and suffering, and they awarded 30 And uh, I think it was $10 million for each in, in the past. And so that was a good lesson from the, the focus group as well. So the total award was $148 million? A hundred and yeah, it was one hundred and forty-eight million. And the previous high in Illinois, a personal injury jury verdict, one plaintiff compensatory damages was uh, at the time was sixty-four million. So you know we were very pleased. So you more than doubled it. More than doubled it, yeah. And you know, for a civil case, you know, versus a criminal case like the George Floyd case, it was pretty well covered. I mean, it was you know daily reporting, courtroom packed of uh, reporters, sketch artists, and things of that. You know, daily reports of the trial on the on the six o'clock and the ten o'clock news, and it was quite exciting. Did that affect your strategy or approach at all? You know what? Not really. I tend to kind of block those things out. I mean, I've not had a case of that with that much media attention before, but I've had a lot of cases where the courtroom is packed, usually with other lawyers, you know, wanting to watch. And I, you know, I just kind of block that out and that doesn't really uh, bother me. And I think it actually helps. You know, big case, a juror see all the, you know, all the cameras right outside, you know, they're walking, you know, you can't bring the camera in the courtroom, but uh, they're right outside the courtroom where the jurors are walking in and out of. You've got all the reporters, many of whom they recognize, uh, sketch artists, you know, and plus, uh, you know, the audience is full. And, and so uh, that lends itself to uh, a big case. Now, I've got to ask, I know you asked for a big award, but did it surprise you when they came back with $148 million? Yeah, it did. I mean, that high, they were out about five hours, and we had discussions about a high-low. We proposed $45 million and 105. The most they did was, uh, I think, 35 and 75. And the defense lawyer had, had almost suggested $35 million in closing argument. So I told him, I said, why should I limit? You've already conceded 35. I mean, that's the doomsday for me now. So that really didn't make sense. They, so we could have gotten a high-low, but they, we just we didn't get there. And thankfully, you know, we did not. Now, perhaps most importantly, what difference did the award make for the plaintiff? Now, none of us would willingly accept uh, these catastrophic injuries in exchange for a, a pile of money in, in, you know, of any size. But what difference did it make for her? Yeah, that, that's a good question, Max. Actually, as it turned out, what happened, uh, the only, uh, there was a, it was a fair trial, it was a pretty clean trial. One problem we did have, actually before post-trial motions, we had a mediation and then we were able to resolve it. And we resolved it at a very a large percentage of the award and, you know, well over $100 million. And One problem we had was that future medical and caretaking expenses, our life care planner put it at $17 million, and the jury award 32. So, you know, the award's got to, it's got to be supported by the evidence. Now, there was evidence of other treatment that could be needed that wasn't accounted for, 
in the life care plan, but I didn't have $15 million worth, you know, maybe another million at the most. And so that, that was a problem, number one. And number two is, uh, in Illinois, we don't have caps on damages. It's been declared unconstitutional. It's a done deal. Uh, the legislator, they've attempted it in the past, but always, always found to be unconstitutional. So another concern we had, and my colleagues had, frankly, although they were happy for me, I think, was an appellate court putting a cap by saying, you know what, this, I know there's no caps, but this is excessive, and, and sort of create a judicial precedent of, of kind of a cap. So I had a slight concern with regards to that, and so we resolved it. And believe it or not, this isn't a commercial for uh, traffic to my website, but on my website, www.salvilaw.com, there is a follow-up video of Tierney Darden. Now, remember that she has now unlimited resources. She's gone to the finest pain clinics. She has been able to wean herself off of opioid medication, which is huge. If you're taking Norcal or you need fentanyl, because sometimes the pain gets so bad, you can't wait 30 or 40 minutes for it to take effect. Fentanyl is breakthrough, five minutes, 10 minutes, it's, it's effective and you need it. You put it in your mouth, you bite down, and it's very, very addictive, but it's very, very effective. She was able to wean herself off of that. And when you wean yourself off of that, then you're alert. You know, you're, you don't want to just sleep. And you, you, know, you can go out and do things. And become involved. And she's uh, now, you know, obviously dancing's out of the question, but she's she's a pretty talented artist. And so that's that's been a big focus of her life. She's been able to drive. She has a vehicle specially contoured for just for her. She has a home that's designed just, you know, to accommodate uh, someone handicapped like like she is. And now she still, you know, suffers pain, and obviously she's paralyzed. But she's a different person. But she needed, you know, the resources to make it uh, a reality. And, and it's really very heartwarming if you watch that uh, video. It, it can make a big difference. It can make a big difference. I remember I tried a case, a brain damaged baby case in Southern Illinois. I got a very large award. And I, one of the best emails I ever, I ever received one year later from the verdict from his dad listing all of the benefits that his son was able to enjoy and have and how it changed their lives. One of the main thing is that oftentimes in these cases, spouses or parents are, are the caregivers. They have to be the caregivers. And it's an enormous, enormous drain on the family. And, and it creates all sorts of problems. As a matter of fact, that tyranny uh, was, uh, what was her biggest concern? That she was a burden on her family. Her direct examination was about 10 minutes, and I have never, ever seen a courtroom packed where you could hear a pin drop like when, when she testified. And it was, it was short, but it was just uh, so moving. And uh, the main takeaway was that, no, she didn't get up there and whine, oh, I'm in so much pain. It was, I feel like I've ruined my mom and dad's life because that's, you know, they work. And they have to, you know, trade off who's going to take care of me, medications, doctor appointments, you know, because you, you can't sleep through the night. A bowel program might take hours just to get it, you know, 
catheterization. One of the nice things I like to do with my physiatrist when he demonstrates a catheterization is I bring out the whole, you know, you have like an anatomical pelvis and anytime you have a female spinal cord injury and you take out the package, you know, the device, the lubricant, and and then you do this, you do that, you do this, then you got to do this, you got to be careful. And it takes about, you know, 10 minutes. And then in four hours, you do it again for the rest of your life. And the jury's like, oh my God. And this, there's just one small little component to loss of a normal life. And, uh, you know, when you have this kind of pain and suffering, like I like to tell the jury, you know, what's the value of pain? What's the value of pain? You know, for example, how many of us have been to a funeral and someone will say, well, at least he's not suffering anymore, right? How many times have you heard that? As if he's better off dead than living with pain. That's how we value being pain-free. Now, you have to have jurors that are receptive to non-economic damages and and not believe, you know, oh, it's not going to make her walk again. It's not going to get rid of the pain. You know, what good does it do? You know, we're just creating generational wealth, et cetera. And so that's why it's very important for lawyers, in my opinion, in, in larger cases, it doesn't have to be a $100 million case, have to, have to confront what will happen in jury, in jury deliberation. And you have to nip it in the bud. You can't just put your head in the sand. So in Illinois, non-economic damages are not reduced to present cash value. So if a juror says... So you read that instruction. So if one during deliberation, if one of the jurors says, oh, Mr. Salvi wants $56 million for just one loss of normal life, you could put that in the bank and earn X amount of dollars without touching the press. If somebody says that, you say, no, 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 time out. That's not following the law. We would not be following the law. The only issue is how bad is it? How long is it going to last? What is it worth by today's standards? And what likely the value of money is going to be 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 56 years from now. That's it. And so you hit that home, you've got to directly deal with that and, and not act like, oh, it, if it's like a dirty little secret. If you don't talk about it, it's not going to come up. It's going to come up right away because that's how jurors think. You know, you've got to deal with it right, in my opinion, directly. Well, Pat, it's an amazing case and an amazing result. You've been very generous with your time today. Your thoughts on damages, in particular, are of interest to me, and I know they're of interest to our listeners. Just a final question. From the plaintiff's perspective, what is the one thing that every lawyer should understand about damages, about maximizing a damages award? Yeah. No, I mean, you have to have a good case. It doesn't have to be a tyranny Darden case. But if you have a a nice plaintiff, a compelling injury that's, you know, permanent and is going to significantly affect them in day-to-day function, work or non-work, and you have good facts and the plaintiff is a victim, I would say that, you, number one, you've got to think big. Think big. Think bold. You know, defense lawyers, oh, that case is, you know, not worth, you know, anywhere near that. We've looked at the jury verdicts in this jurisdiction. If you start listening to defense lawyers and insurance companies about the value of the case, you're in the wrong business. Think bold and big. 
And because the jurors are not going to be shocked when you um, talk to them about, you know, what you're going to ask if the court permits. I like to uh, sort of set the bar in jury selection, sort of uh, anchor them on an amount. So I would say the the best advice I would give the lawyers is try your best cases. Try your best cases. Don't get into the routine of settling your best cases and trying the ones where they won't offer you anything or where you're forced to try the case. Too many lawyers do that. And what happens is they, they lose one, two, three, four, five, and then they're, they're out of the business. Or they just, they've lost the appetite for trials. It's too painful. You, we work too hard on these trials to lose. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's the biggest kick in the stomach you can ever imagine. And now, where does the risk come in? The risk comes in in terms of having to turn down a lot of money. That's where you, you know, you have the sleepless nights. But if I were to say uh, one thing to the lawyers is try your good cases and trust your talent. Trust your talent. You can do it, you know. Now, you're going to have to out-prepare, out-prepare, out-prepare your opponent. You have to put in as many hours and hours and hours of preparation. And then depending on the complexity of the case, that means you start your preparation that many weeks or months before trial is, is necessary, dictated by the complexity of the case. And assuming that you have that meticulous preparation, trust your talents, and you'll get, you know, great results. And think big. Think big and bold. With that, I thank you. I appreciate your insights, Pat. Thank you for joining us and for sharing your thoughts on the litigation war room. Max, my pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. Great seeing you again. You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country, bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room. And please, Rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the litigation war room.